Hopefully it wasn't hard. I know some of you were dragged here against your will, and I'm sorry. Um, kidnapping happens, and it's not good. We don't condone it. The Bible doesn't condone it, but at least they kidnapped you to church. There's worse places to get kidnapped, I'm aware. Um, so uh, we're going to continue our study in liturgy this week. Uh, one of the things that we don't necessarily have is a very high liturgy. So if you're used to coming to maybe a Catholic church or perhaps a Presbyterian church or even an Anglican church, you will see a lot of liturgy. There's stand, sit, there's uh, regimented repeat after me, there's things that you're going to say in unison. Um, so that's what liturgy is. So hopefully you're, you, you might think that's going to be really boring, but it's actually really exciting. I wanted to... Uh, intro today's lesson, which I think is actually pretty cool, because it's, uh, it's talking a lot about distraction. Um, and for those of you who are techies, of which I am like a, like a, like kind of a techie, like I like tech, but like not enough to spend more time on it than is weird, <laughs> like a true techie would. Um, but Android just updated their phone. It's pretty interesting that we were talking about distraction today. In their most recent Android edition, which is, for those of you who have an iPhone, you don't understand this, but they're, they're, they don't necessarily release a new phone. Every time they have an edition, they just release new editions. I know it's confusing. Their uh, newest edition has a, has a special way, that, and this is something that's coming in more common even with apps, to actually regulate the amount of time you use your cell phone. Because it turns out that we're not supposed to have our faces buried in a screen all the time. Turns out that's a bad idea. When your parents told you that if you kept playing video games, your brain was going to melt and your eyes were going to fall out. They weren't exactly right, but they were kind of right. <laughs> so so, so that's, uh, that's actually a real thing they included in their update. And it's interesting that we could talk about distraction this week um, as, as even there's just pieces of culture acknowledging that there's, there's a certain level of us that needs to unplug from distraction to actually be present with actual reality. Um, so that's going to be our um, topic today, and uh, in true fashion, I didn't actually, as I was holding way too many people, did not, children, holding way too many children in my arms, I didn't actually pull up the scripture that I was supposed to read this morning, so I do apologize as I'm going out to flip through that. Unless you have it right up in your thing, then I will read it out loud from yours, Jesse. Oh, cool. It's even highlighted for me. So this is, a, <laughs> this is a passage in Ezekiel. It's Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27, and this is what it says. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. So let's pray, and then Jesse's going to teach us from the Word. Uh, dear Jesus, we are again thankful to be able to pray to you, uh, and we again ask that as your Word is opened and we now switch to worshiping you through learning what you would have for us, I pray that we would just pull back on our own desires. Uh, we would pull back on our own distractions that we have in here. Uh, lunch is coming, and there's children, and everything can just loom so ominously. And I pray that you would pull back on that cloud so that we can actually plug into what your word has. Let your spirit work uh, through your word in our hearts. So we thank you for that today. I pray for Jesse that you would be with him, that he would speak clear truths uh, and timely truths. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I timed this last night. It was 27 minutes. Um, but for whatever reason, whenever I time it, it's always less time than it actually takes, which I feel like is what the opposite of what people actually tell you. They're like, well, when you're up there and you're reading it, you're more nervous, so you read faster. Apparently, I just, I'm so comfortable that I just don't do that. Um, 
So uh, welcome, everybody. My name's Jesse. I'm one of the elders here at Missio Day Church. Uh, I want to thank you all for coming. Really appreciate it. Uh, I'm glad that you're here. So this is our second week in our new series, Liturgy, uh, a short series where we are diving into the different portions and aspects of our worship service. Um, we're changing some things. We're doing some things a little bit differently, and we're doing, hopefully, some all of it even better than what we usually do. Um, so before I begin... Um, <laughs> I wrote, I wrote like a little illustration, and I meant it to be fictitious, but it actually happened to me this morning, and some of you witnessed that here, so I just want to be completely upfront with you that a lot of these portions I take from my own life, even though it's a fictitious story, so don't judge me. I know that it's me, okay? <laughs> so it's, uh, let's, let's, let's take us back to 9 o'clock uh, this morning. It's 9 a.m. Sunday morning. James overslept, but the real problem is that it's never just James that overslept. When he oversleeps, his whole family oversleeps. He bolts out of bed and starts barking orders for everyone to wake up and get to the bathroom. We're leaving for church. He knows he shouldn't have binged Stranger Things again last night, but what's done is done, and there's still time to make it to church, so he keeps pushing forward. By 9.45, he's out the door. James skipped breakfast in interest of shaving off an extra hour and a half. He figures he'll just grab refreshments at church before it starts. He pulls into the parking lot at 10.10, and by the time he gets his bagel and coffee and finds his chair, the sermon is starting at 10.30. Sure, he missed all the songs, but there's one at the end, so it makes up for it. As the sermon is preached, his mind is racing, filling with all the things he needs to get done today, all the stuff he neglected to do yesterday, yet needs to be done before he goes back into his work routine tomorrow. By the time he regains his train of thought, pastor is asking him to bow his head and respond to the word that was just preached. At the end of the service, James says to himself, was all this rushing around even worth it? I don't even remember a thing about what this whole ordeal was about. Does this sound familiar? (laughs) To me, it's today. (laughs) Have you ever felt that way after the service? You ask yourself why you even came. Was all the rushing around and stress worth it? I know I certainly have. If I had the time to go through all the back and forth with the kids, attempting to explain to them why hurrying is important, the story would be 45 minutes longer easily. But here's the problem we're going to address today. Our minds and hearts are easily distracted by internal and external factors, and yet God is worthy of our undivided minds and hearts as we worship him. Is this not true? Have you ever felt the tension of these things that are often both true at the same time? Deep down, you know and understand that God is worthy of more than what you're giving him, and yet daily we give him less than we should in right worship. The first question we need to address today as we begin our time is this. Does how we approach God in worship matter? As we read the Old Testament, we come across chapters and chapters regarding the high priests and their interactions with the temple, and we'll get into that later on, but we don't see the same great lengths describing how to worship God laid out for us post-resurrection. There are good reasons for all of this, but let's remind ourselves of just a couple Old Testament passages about approaching God in worship. Let's go way back to Exodus 3. Moses has left Egypt, and he's living in the wilderness 
with his in-laws, not as royalty, but as a shepherd. Uh, We're going to start in chapter 3, verse 1. I should have it uh, in our notes there. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then God said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And the Lord said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, there are many lessons that we can draw from this text, but I want us to zoom in on the pertinent part for us today in verse 5. God commands Moses to remove his shoes. Why? For he was standing on holy ground. But why was the ground holy? Well, it wasn't because there was a bush there. It wasn't because Moses was there, and it wasn't because of the beautiful scenery. It was because God was there. And God is holy. And it is precisely this reason that there is a certain way to approach God in worship. Let's fast forward a few years. God has given his laws to the Hebrews, including all the sacrificial laws and priestly guidelines for how to approach God in worship. The place closest to God on earth was in the side of the temple, the Holy of Holies. This was the inner sanctum of God's house, separate from the outer holy place. In Leviticus 10, Aaron is the high priest of Israel, and the chapter opens with a bold and devastating account. Uh, This also should be, I think I put it in the notes. Starting in verse 1 of Leviticus chapter 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. This might seem like an arbitrary act of God, an overreaction of epic proportions, But all worship should never forget, first and foremost, that God is holy. One commentary explains the offense this way. It consisted not only in their venturing unauthorized to perform the incense service, the highest and most solemn of the priestly offices, not only in their engaging together in a work which was the duty only of one, but in their presuming to intrude into the Holy of Holies, to which access was denied to all but the high priest alone. In this respect, they offered strange fire before the Lord. They were, listen to this, they were guilty of a presumptuous and unwarranted intrusion into a sacred office which did not belong to them. 
I'm going to read that last line again. They were guilty of a presumptuous and unwarranted intrusion into a sacred office which did not belong to them. These men defied God and approached him in a way that they wanted to, not in the way that God had prescribed to them. And they bore the consequences of disobeying God. Now let's talk about us, post-resurrection. When I say post-resurrection, I mean after the, after the cross of Jesus Christ, after his work there. I think we can all put our hands up to say that we've approached God wrongly in worship with unclean hearts and strange fire of our own. Have we not? And yet here we are, doing it week in and week out, without such a major consequence as Nadab and Abihu had faced. That is because with Jesus' sacrifice, the whole paradigm of worshiping God has changed. And this is good news for us. So how are we to approach God in worship? That's the question that we're looking at today. Let's look at our text and draw out the answers to this question. Then we will apply that to our new liturgy. So we're going to be looking at, uh, flip it's in there, definitely, uh, Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 22, which says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We're going to get into our first point today, which is the key to right worship is Jesus. In order to understand everything that follows, we must understand verses 19 through 21 and what they are trying to say. These verses center around Jesus and what he accomplished by his death, burial, and resurrection. Let's pick a few words from these verses and zoom in on them so we can have a full grasp before we proceed to the rest of the text. Let's first focus on this new and living way that we see in verse 20. Sorry, we're going to go a little out of order here. Uh, my mind is backwards, and so is this, so that's fine. Uh, so what is the new and living way? The Old Testament, as we discussed, contains chapters and chapters of God's laws to his people. Certain laws set up boundaries to coming to God in worship, like do not do X, Y, and Z, while others gave instructions on how to access God in worship, do X, Y, and Z, and then come to me. It is these laws that would be considered the old ways. Jesus himself speaks to the law this way, do not think, and this is Matthew five seventeen. This is not in the this is not on the screen. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. After Jesus' death, cataclysmic changes came to the way we approach God in worship. Christ's fulfillment of the law satisfied God's requirements for the forgiveness of sin and rendered all of Israel's customary laws a thing of the past. It is in this way that we should think of this approach to worship as a new and living way. For Christ's work is both new and living. Each time we come to God in worship, we should give thanks for Christ's work on our behalf. Let's cover a few more words. 
Let's talk about the great priest and the curtain for a moment. We see these in verses, verse 21. This touches again the Israelite laws regarding how to access God. There was one and only one day a year that the high priest was able to enter into the Holy of Holies, and that was the Day of Atonement. Atonement may sound like a big religious word, but it is the crux of our faith. Atonement for us as Christians is the reconciling of man back to God through Jesus' sacrifice. Do you see the word one in there, in that word atonement? Remember it as at one meant, bringing two separate things back into one relationship. But in the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement was the day that the high priest symbolically placed the sins of the entire nation onto a goat and banished that goat into the wilderness, depicting God's removal of sin from the nation. He then sacrificed animals for himself and his family, and then again for the whole nation to make atonement for the nation's sins, bringing them back into right relationship with God. The high priest sprinkled blood from the sacrifices on the mercy seat, the place where God dwelt. But to do so, he had to pass through an inches thick curtain to access it. This curtain reminded him that there is no direct access to God except through the curtain and in a certain way. This is why this passage in Hebrews mentions the priest and the curtain in reference to Jesus, because his sacrifice literally tore the curtain in the temple from top to bottom, satisfying God's wrath and granting us access to God. Let's zoom in on one final word before we move forward. Let's talk about the word confidence. That is found in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus Christ. Where does this confidence come from? Well, it comes from the doctrine of justification, where God accounts Christ's righteousness to our account, so that we may come before him not under his wrath. Um, throughout church history, groups have written confessions of faith. There's the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, the London Baptist Confession of Faith. There are modern confessions of faith. And what these confessions of faith are, are well, what they're supposed to be, are succinct summaries of different doctrines for the church so that we can all be on the same page about what these doctrines are. Now, the Presbyterians use the Westminster Confession. The, the well, Reformed Baptists use the 1689 London Baptist Confession, and so on. Different denominations have different confessions as their theology is tweaked. But the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith has this insight for us regarding the doctrine of justification. It should be on the screen. By his obedience and death, Christ fully paid the debt of all those who are justified. He endured in their place the penalty they deserved. That's us. By this sacrifice of himself in his bloodshed on the cross, he legitimately, really, and fully satisfied God's justice on their behalf. Yet their justification is based entirely on free grace, because he was given by the Father for them, and his obedience and satisfaction were accepted in their place. These things were done freely, not because of anything in them, that is us, the sinners, so that both the exact justice and rich grace of God would be glorified, in the justification of sinners. This, friends, 
gives us confidence. We don't have to worry that our bad deeds outweigh our good deeds or any such nonsense. Christ's sacrifice is our good. And because of that, we can approach God confidently in worship. Jesus is the key to right worship. Now that we have that foundation laid, let's press on into verse 22. It is in this verse that we start to see some answers to our question of how are we to draw near to God. The text prescribes four things, but we'll combine the first two and make our next three points. Yeah, I know. That was a good one, right? The text prescribes four things, but we'll combine the first two to make our next three points. The first point here is that we are to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. I'll I'll read verse 22 again briefly. Verse 22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The word true here means sincere. So we are to draw with a sincere heart. We are not to have worship be an afterthought something that we rush into, or something that we have not prepared well for. We can gather from the Old Testament references earlier that God treats his own worship seriously, so why would we not? However, don't mistake the word sincere, meaning all put together. Oftentimes, sincerity looks like tears, laughter, anger, or anxiety. This frees us up from having to feel a certain way when we approach God. God would not have told you he is a father if he did not want you to approach him, as the old hymn says, just as you are. Sincerity and righteous, and seriousness rather, sincerity and seriousness can go hand in hand, and that is how a true heart approaches God. But not only are we to approach with a true, sincere, serious heart, but we are to approach in full assurance of faith. One commentary looks at the phrase this way, that we are to come with no doubt as to our acceptance when coming to God by the blood of Christ. It sounds a lot like the confidence we were speaking about earlier, does it not? We should have full assurance in approaching God when we come with clean hearts, resting in the completed work of our Savior, on the cross. In addition, our text also makes note of another condition of our heart in worship, and that is that our hearts are to be sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Now, what in the world does that mean? This phrase cross-references back to the Ezekiel passage we read at the beginning of today. Um, Some of you might be familiar with that passage. The beginning of this particular passage, meaning the beginning of this section of Scripture, um, begins with God speaking to the house of Israel, stating that this is his word to them. This is God's word to his people. Let's take a look. This is Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. God says this to Israel, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I'll repeat that first part. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Does this sound familiar? There's, these are good coffee cup verses right here. But the act of cleansing is familiar to Scripture. Um, what do you think the default state of the human heart is? Clean or dirty? Dirty. And what kind of heart does God accept into right worship of him? Clean. Now, as far as we are concerned, we talked about this earlier, Christ's sacrifice covered our sins and his righteousness is counted to our account. And before God, we appear clean, which is good news. That's the doctrine of justification. However, just because we are justified before God, this does not mean that we are perfect human beings. Certainly not. (laughs) Let's go back to our friend James from the first illustration. Let's say rather than being late, he made it to church on time. But with the same stresses he faced when he left his home. During that process, he was short with his wife and kids. He was self-righteous and blamed the rushing around on those around him. He was rude to his friends, asking how he was doing on his way in. He was secluding himself as he dodged questions from that one person he didn't want to talk to. James entered into worship with an unclean heart, a heart distracted in more ways than one. And this unclean heart creates a barrier to worship. Not that God looks upon James with wrath, but because it is James who is living in that sin and not dealing with it before coming to worship God. Approach God with a clean heart, a heart sprinkled clean of impurities, covered with forgiveness, and resting in right relationship with God and others. The final comment this passage offers is this, that we are to come with our bodies washed with pure water. The meaning to this phrase is perhaps the hardest to parse in this section of verses. I've read authors who believe this is particularly referring to baptism. Others still believe this is simply referring to both an outward and an inward cleansing in the context of the rest of the verse prior. However, I would argue that in any case, whether it be baptism or simply symbolism, in both cases, the word washed references a literal washing throughout the rest of the New Testament. However, that literal washing ranges from washing the disciples' feet to the Holy Spirit washing our hearts at the moment we are saved. But let's just roll with the meaning of literal baptism. What is baptism? At its core, it's an outward manifestation of an inward reorientation, right? It's a public outward identification with Christ symbolizing a cleansing of our sins by identifying with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But what does this mean? Does this mean we need to be baptized every Sunday before service? No, it does not mean that. It simply means that we are looking at a literal symbol. We look to baptism as a symbol of cleansing our bodies in new life. And so, just as we look to baptism as an outward symbol of something greater, so are we to look at our outward selves and surroundings to remove distraction and wash distractions and barriers to worship. 
So summarizing these last two points, we are to have our inward lives and our outward lives pointed in attention to God in right worship. Now that we've taken a look at the text, we're going to move on to our next point, which is removing these barriers to worship. Let's see how we're going to put the text into practice here at Missio Dei and in our own lives. Taking the two general points from verse 22, let's look at two different areas in which we can remove distractions or remove barriers to worship. With, and the first is within our own hearts, and the second is within our own environments, inside and outside. The very first thing we want to do in our new liturgy is to remove distractions from worship. We want to take time and focus on what's important, to reorient ourselves away from whatever maelstrom was going on outside these walls and to the right worship of God. The first thing we want to address is our own hearts, but this does not start Sunday morning. This begins throughout the week. It will be our goal to post a sermon summary a few days prior to Sunday with a brief clip of what the sermon will be about. We've done this the past two weeks, if you've noticed. I don't know if you follow us on social media. Um, It will be a brief clip about what the sermon is about, as well as the main scripture we'll be walking through. This will give you plenty of time to start praying through the passage, asking God to reveal his word to you as you walk in preparation towards Sunday morning. You can pray for the teacher as they prepare to teach through this text, as well as make sure you're in bed on time so you can be where you need to be Sunday morning. All these things work together to remove distractions from Sunday morning because the passage and topic will already be familiar to you. So you'll be ready to be engaged with the prayed, preached, and sung word of God that morning. As far as the structure of the Sunday service, we want to encourage at least two ways to prepare your hearts for worship, and that is with prayer and confession. These times will be present for you to formally address your own heart as worship begins. We will pray corporately, all together, and privately. We will thank Jesus for his sacrifice for us, and we will, like the people of Israel, confess our sins before a holy God so that we may approach with clean hearts and unstained consciences, as the text describes. The idea of a time of prayer and confession might not sit well with all of you. Some of you may have memories of a Catholic upbringing, one where the sacrament of confession was a means to an end of hopeful salvation. This is not what this time is. We have direct access to God through Jesus Christ, our High Priest. The veil is torn, and there is no earthly mediator between God and man any longer. That ship has sailed. We now have access and confidence before God through Christ's sacrifice. And so this time is a time for you to deal with the sinful distractions clouding your heart and preventing you from right worship. This is not a means of salvation for you. I want that to be very clear before we proceed. Our next point is our environments. As we are ensuring our hearts are in a right place before worship, we also want to ensure that the things around us are in order as well. If you're no stranger to Missio Dei, you know that we're not a very rigid church. 
It might be 10.15 and no one has realized that we should be halfway through our third song by now. And we haven't even been seated yet. But this is not a good external environment for our people. And we want to repent of that by introducing a formal call to worship. Traditionally, a call to worship is some type of saying, greeting, or scripture used to signal the beginning of worship service and gain everyone's attention as it begins. Some of you, like myself, hear the word formal and think of a three-piece suit and a boring time. However, by formal, I simply mean actually existing. (laughs) Not some type of high church these and thou's call to worship. This could look like a reading from the Psalms, a testimony, and or a prayer to begin our service and focus our environments so our hearts have room to engage in worship. Nathan mentioned last week that some of you will be called upon to read the word, to give a testimony of God's goodness, or open us up in prayer. So be ready to engage in this wonderful new peace to our service. Also, give us grace as we walk into this new portion. Come to church prepared to engage with your hearts, minds, and bodies with the word of God prayed, preached, and sung. Come with your hearts prepared and ready to take a place among God's people on the Lord's day. As we walk into respond time, we hit our last point, and that is come and worship. There are a few things we need to take care of in our own hearts. Now that we've all heard, we're also all held accountable by God's word. So we need to be careful about how we approach this response time. It's actually something I'll teach on in a couple weeks. Um, But for now, let's just walk into it. We've walked from looking at Old Testament worship and all its complexities and solemnity to New Testament worship in Christ. We must never forget that Christ is the key to Christian worship. Without Christ, we are under condemnation of the law. Without Christ, we as Gentiles have no access to God. Without Christ, we face the wrath of wrong worship of God. Without Christ, we have no hope of communion with God. Without Christ, we have no forgiveness of sins. Without Christ, we have no true fellowship with one another. Without Christ, we cannot approach God with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with clean hearts and washed bodies. Without Christ, we have no hope. Without Christ, without Christ, without Christ, without Christ, without Christ. And the list goes on. The whole point is this. God is a holy God deserving of right worship. And without Christ's sacrifice ripping open the curtain and granting us access before a holy God, right worship of him is impossible for us. The gospel is center, even of how we begin our services here at Missio Day, And it has to be central throughout our service, and it has to be central throughout our week as we live our lives. Are we all on board with that? Do we understand? Does this make sense? As we close, I want to give you both a charge and an invitation. The, they will seem almost paradoxical, but fortunately for me, I won't be the first person to preach a paradox from Scripture, and I won't be the last. For Scripture itself seems paradoxical at times, but I want to charge us all with this. Don't we dare approach God flippantly and for the sake of routine or duty. Let me say that again. Don't we dare approach God flippantly 
and for the sake of routine or duty. His holiness is worth far more than we could ever give. And let's approach him in that way. And my invitation to you is this. Come. Come and rest in the grace Jesus provides for us in worship. Come with confidence, knowing your Savior's sacrifice covers all your sin. Come with a sincere heart. Come with a clean conscience. Come with a heart, mind, and body free from distraction. Come to worship God together with us. Let's pray.